0: From Public Radio International, this is the world. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, September 28th. I'm Aaron Schachter. setback for al-Qaeda-linked militants in Somalia. Kenyan troops stormed al-Shabaab's last stronghold today. Also ahead, a young Saudi blogger says women are leading the push for change in Saudi Arabia. And later, a Chinese stand-up comedian in America, Joe Wong, tells us about cultural confusion and explaining race to his son. And he looked at his arm and he's
1: like, hey, dad, this doesn't look yellow to me. <laughs> I said, well, it's not exactly yellow, but in this country, everybody has to have a color.
2: Our eyes. The world is supported by Medtronic. Hosting 25 Global Heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals may Their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is the world. Operation Sledgehammer
0: executed as planned. That's what a Kenyan military spokesman wrote on Twitter today, announcing what may be a major setback for al-Shabaab, the al-Qaeda-linked Islamist group in Somalia. Al-Shabaab used to control large parts of Somalia, and the port city of Kismayu was its stronghold. But Kenyan troops say they've now captured the port with an amphibious assault. The situation on the ground may still be uncertain, though. Jeffrey Gettleman is the New York Times' East Africa correspondent. And uh, Jeffrey, remind us who al-Shabaab is and why Kenya felt it needed to go into Somalia.
3: The Shabaab is is a militant group that has controlled large parts of Somalia for several years. They have ruled their areas quite brutally. They've chopped off hands, stoned people to death, implemented a very draconian version of Sharia law. They've also staged suicide bombs and pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. So they're considered a wider threat to the region and even to the United States. Kenya has been struggling for years what to do about this problem. Somalia and Kenya share a long border. So last year, the Kenyans decided to go into Somalia to send their troops across the border. Publicly, they said this was to secure the border. Privately, I had Kenyan officials tell me that one of the main reasons why they went in was to protect their economic interests in the region because they planned to build a big port near the Somali border, and that was impossible with the Shabab next door.
0: Even so, though, they were welcomed by the fledgling Somali government, were they not?
3: It's hard to really answer that. The areas outside of Mogadishu, the capital, are controlled by different clan militias. The government holds very little sway there. So we really should think of Somalia as a patchwork of different authorities. One is the government in Mogadishu, but there are many others.
0: Okay, so here's the big question. Is this a good thing that the Kenyans have now rolled into Kismayu? They helped uh, wrestle Mogadishu from al-Shabaab and now Kismayu?
3: It's a bad thing for the Shabaab because... Kismayo was one of the biggest ports in Somalia, and it was a way that the Shabaab could bring in weapons for their guerrilla activities. Kismayo is also an economic resource in Somalia, because whoever controls it can levy taxes and fees on all the things that are brought through the port. So the loss of Kismayo, if that's indeed what's happening right now, is a serious setback for the Shabaab. However, they have vowed to go underground. And to take their struggle even more in the guerrilla direction. And that could make them just as dangerous as they've ever been.
0: Now, as we've said, these are Kenyan forces taking on al-Shabaab in Somalia. Is this okay that Kenya is involved in Somalia? What, what are relations between the two countries like?
3: Kenya has gotten a lot of support for its operations in Somalia. The U.S. government, for one, is firmly behind the Kenyans. The U.S. government has been helping this overall African Union peacekeeping mission in Somalia that has steadily whittled away at the Shabaab's capacity to control territory. The Kenyans are now a piece of that. But the big question is, what's going to happen next? Somalia has been at this point before where militants have been defeated, only to pop back up and to create more chaos.
0: The one thing that is certain is that the Kenyan military mounted an amphibious assault, which strikes us here as as a bit shocking. Who knew they could do something like that?
3: Yeah, they're very proud of this amphibious assault and said today in a Twitter message that this was the first ever launched by an African military. I don't know if that's true or not, but they explained that they had this multi-pronged offensive with their Air Force, their Navy, their Army, and that they even brought Somali soldiers in on boats with them so they could uh, have a Somali face on the operation.
0: Jeffrey Gettleman is based in East Africa for The New York Times. Jeffrey, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a year since African Union and Somali soldiers drove Al-Shabaab from Mogadishu, and there are signs of renewal in the Somali capital. Rebuilding work has begun, and there are new international flights carrying people to the city. Despite that optimism, thousands of people who were displaced by the fighting are still stuck in what should have been temporary camps. Mark Yarnell is with the group Refugees International. He's in Nairobi, just back from spending five days in Mogadishu. Mark... Why are these people still in these camps?
4: When Al Shabaab left the city, it allowed uh, local militias to consolidate power and take control of some of the IDP camps. Internally displaced as, people. Pardon me, internally displaced people. Yeah. As aid comes into the uh, into these camps, those who who control the camps they're often referred to as gatekeepers. They ask for the displaced people to pay a portion of that aid as rent, essentially. And we heard indications of those who were displaced wanting to go home, but because they were back on the rent, they were were not allowed to leave.
0: Now, how far does the control of these gangs or gatekeepers, as you call them, extend? Can they decide who comes in or goes, who you speak to, things like that?
4: Some displaced people find that they uh, actually do receive some security from their gatekeepers. There are others who are quite merciless and cruel when... Uh, There's a distribution of food, for instance. Once the aid workers leave, the gatekeepers will then go around to the residents of the camps and demand a portion of the food as their rent. In other cases, if there's a delivery of shelter, the gatekeepers may sell them in the local market and then take that money. You know, some describe it as essentially quasi-slavery.
0: And why can't the the people who are in the camps just leave, go back home, now that al-Shabaab is no longer in Mogadishu?
4: Uh, each situation is is different. There's many camps throughout Mogadishu, but in some circumstances, the gatekeepers themselves are aligned with militias, and are quite powerful, and that that has a major impact in in the ability of displaced people to sort of move on their own free will. Uh, I mean, they're essentially treated as as commodities in some cases. Now, these camps were set up
0: during the fighting uh, against Al Shabaab on land that had been abandoned, but I, I assume that somebody owns the the land, and and maybe now that things are getting better are coming back to take their property. What are the consequences for the people in the camps? Uh,
4: no, this is a very important context to, and, and dynamic to understand of what's happening in Mogadishu. You know, there, There's a lot of positive stories. There's development, there's schools being reconstructed, there's new businesses popping up. But as the city develops, the government wants to reclaim uh, portions of the land where IDPs were settled. Um, the businessmen who come back uh, often want to reclaim their land. You know, we went to a an area which had once housed probably tens of thousands of refugees in a, an abandoned school. And the positive story is that the school is being refurbished and will hopefully be open soon. It's a secondary school. But the other side of the story is that the displaced people who were living there were basically just evicted, and it's it's unclear where they went and where they're able to live after that and what kind of services they could receive. And there are you know there are upwards of hundreds of thousands of displaced people living in Mogadishu. And so the more that land owners seek to reclaim the land, the more this is going to be a a serious issue.
0: Mark Yonel is from the group Refugees International. He was talking to us from Nairobi, Kenya. Mark, thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Moving on is complicated in Srebrenica too. The Bosnian town was the site of the worst atrocity in Europe since World War II. In 1995, 8,000 Muslim men and boys were massacred there by Bosnian Serbs. Before the war, Muslims or Bosniaks were 70% of the population. Now the town's about 70% Serb. Bosniaks maintained political power because those who fled the war could vote in local elections. But new rules make that difficult. That means when Srebrenica holds a mayoral election next week, the winner could be a Serb. Nate Tabak reports.
5: In the center of town, Alic restaurant is hopping by Srebrenica standards. Elvis Spilic is chowing down on the Bosnian staple of Cevapcici, grilled links of minced meat. Spilic, a Bosniak, lived through the massacre in 1995 and spent two months in a Serb prison. He returned here six years ago. Mostly I came back because I lost everything here, he says. This election, he says, is about sending a message to those who killed and drove out thousands of his fellow Bosniaks 17 years ago. We want to show them that they have not accomplished their goal of ethnically cleansing here, he says. In an alley in the town center, sanitation worker Saleh Salihovic is drinking beer with friends. Salihovic says Bosniaks like him are afraid of Serbs taking power. To Muslims. Be so, so, so uh, so hard to live here, to stay. He says he escaped execution three times during the war. Then someone tried to kill him when he returned ten years ago.
6: And I'm surviving in that. But um, we are must to live together, Serbs, Muslims, and orders, people.
7: How is that going?
6: Right now, good. But uh, work, if you understand, is so difficult, like anywhere in the world. Just walking through this
5: tiny town of 7,000, the divisions between Serbs and Bosniaks seem subtle. It's difficult to tell who's a Bosniak and who's a Serb. They speak the same language. What is clear is that Srebrenica has seen better days. Many shops are boarded up. Before the war, Srebrenica was a prosperous mining town with more than 30,000 people. Despite millions of dollars in aid after the war, industry is a fraction of what it once was, and jobs are scarce. Dragan Svetinovic has been out of work for six years. The unemployed mechanic is spending his Sunday morning at a sports betting shop. Svetinovich is a Serb, but he has mixed feelings about the possibility of a Serb mayor. Even
8: though I'm a Serb and would like a Serb to be elected, I know it means that instantly there would be fewer donations for Srebrenica. In
5: other words, Svetinovich thinks that a Serb mayor might have a harder time continuing to attract the millions and dollars of aid that's come in from the West over the years. If a Serb is elected, it would likely be Vesna Kochevich. Kochevich is a soft-spoken accountant and a newcomer to politics. She's campaigning on an economic platform, calling for more investment and job creation. She says Srebrenica's past has held a prisoner. I always
2: say it's terrible what happened, but we can't do anything about it anymore. Don't we have a right to create a new life?
5: And Kočević says that new life should reflect the will of the people who currently live in Srebrenica, most of whom are Serbs.
2: It's a big hardship for those of us who stayed here that Srebrenica is always mentioned in this wartime context. It's hard to live with this burden, we're always supposed to bear the guilt.
5: Other Bosnian Serb leaders, including members of her own party, have made statements denying or minimizing the killings at Srebrenica. But Kochevich says she wants to represent all residents of Srebrenica, but not the ones who haven't lived here since the war. She says Bosniaks would have nothing to fear if she's elected, because Srebrenica 's now a place where everyone's rights are respected. It's all fake and fiction. Chamil Dorakovich is Srebrenica's acting mayor. He's the sole Bosniak candidate in the mayoral race. He says that the election of a Serb mayor wouldn't be legitimate because thousands of Bosniaks left the town against their will. Dorakovich's supporters spent much of the summer re-registering Bosniak voters, including those who no longer live here.
9: But you cannot forbid somebody who was a victim of genocide, who survived here and now lives in Sarajevo due to genocide, coming here to be a part of a political life.
5: Ultimately, the election hinges on how many of those former residents will vote, or even be allowed to vote. Still, many in Srebrenica say that Serbs will have a bigger say in this election than any others since the war. For The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Srebrenica.
2: This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, joining with the World Heart Federation to celebrate World Heart Day, September 29th, with a focus on women, children, and heart disease. Learn more at Medtronic.com. And by Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, a two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS.
0: I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The turmoil of the Arab Spring has brought great changes to many countries in the Middle East, but not to Saudi Arabia. It remains a tightly controlled conservative monarchy, one that uses oil revenues to keep its population from demanding too much change. Still, some see an opening for democratic reforms in Saudi Arabia, as the country's rulers age and as Saudis push for a bigger say in their government. Young Saudi blogger Aya Sehati says women are at the forefront of that change.
10: The gender inequality in Saudi Arabia is just so grave that now it's coming to boil. I mean, it's the women who are protesting and making a lot of noise, more than the men.
0: As a young Saudi woman, what does democratic Saudi Arabia look like to you?
10: My vision for Saudi would be a peaceful and collaborative transformation into a constitutional monarchy. I like having a king or queen as a figurehead because it tempers the damaging short-sightedness that comes with cyclical democratic campaigning, you know, as we see in the United States, for example. People, when they're campaigning in 4 years or five-year cycles, they tend to look at their scorecard according to short-term goals, rather than seeing some sort of continuity in the long-term vision. And I believe that a king can play a role in emulating the soul of the country in terms of the long term.
11: How
0: much influence do you think does the younger generation have, um, you and your peers, in transforming the political system in the kingdom?
10: They have plenty of influence and they recognize it. I do believe that there is a united vision in the youth, generally speaking, in where they would like to see their country. We we live in a technologically integrated global society. I mean, everybody's a global citizen right now, especially the youth, and they are able to compare the freedoms different governments assure for their populations and are able to examine what preferences they have for their own society.
0: I think Americans just find themselves sort of shocked because we get to talk to people like you and we see people like you on television, because they're the ones who speak English. And then we're sort of shocked when people say, no, 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 we we want an Islamic society. We don't want America in the Gulf.
10: I understand your question. And I think that our point of view is that we are a proud people and we do not want others to interfere in our domestic affairs unless we specifically ask for help. But also something really important to remember is as Muslims, we do not believe there is a conflict between Islam and democracy. In fact, we believe that Islam is first philosophy that advocated the values of equality, freedom and fraternity. I mean, France uh, with Egalité, uh, Liberté and Fraternité came way later.
0: Now, you mentioned that uh, women are in the forefront of change in Saudi Arabia. How so?
10: Women realize they have more power because in a conservative society like Saudi Arabia, when women are vocal, it is a lot less likely that they are going to suffer consequences the way men would that would just turn the society upside down if women in scores are being imprisoned but also there are so many women like me and far more advanced than me who are interested in playing roles in leadership whether it's in the private sector or in public service and they are denied you know the honor of serving as ambassadors and ministers in Saudi Arabia this is why I think a lot of women are now uh, being very vocal. I mean, we've seen the protests in one of the universities, an all-woman university in Saudi Arabia several months ago. The girls are unapologetic. They're quite ready to see change.
0: Aya Sehati is a businesswoman and writer. Uh, she joined us from New York City. Thank you so much.
10: Thank you so much.
0: It was the headbutt seen by hundreds of millions around the globe. You know the one. Soccer World Cup Final 2006, French star Zinedine Zidane driving his shaved head into the chest of an Italian defender, allegedly in reaction to an insult about his sister, instant red card, game over for Zidane, and infamy on the last day of his career, and Italy goes on to win the World Cup. In soccer terms, it's ancient history now, but the headbutt, the moment of madness from one of the game's best players, lives on especially now that it's been immortalized with a bronze statue in front of the Centre Pompidou Art Museum in Paris. Adil Abdesamed is the sculptor who created the work, Coup de Tête. Mr. Abdesamed, what was it about that moment in sporting history that inspired you to make this work?
6: Today we celebrate always the, the glory, you know, victory, the people who win, you know, and um, this uh, sculpture is uh, Talking uh, about uh, one man, one uh, uh, he lose, celebrates uh, uh, how we say, uh, you know, defeat.
0: That, that's a very good description. I, I must admit, and and I guess I'm not okay. as thoughtful as you are. But when I first saw it, I thought, my goodness, that's glorifying violence.
6: You know, for me, I receive it as you, I think, as everybody, as a violence. But you know, if you take this way, uh, what he did, he done for me. He expressed uh, uh, liberty as a human, because uh, he was like um, that time he was like uh, as a man, you know, as not like. Uh, uh, he, he was like not
0: a, a god. Christian. He was a man.
6: Yes, that's it, and he expressed uh, the liberty for me, you know.
0: Yeah, no, but, absolutely, you know. I, I understand, but it, from a, a sporting perspective, it it wasn't a very sportsmanlike thing to do.
6: Of course, of course, of course. But you know, violence—it's always—it's uh, like a reaction, you know. It's like opposite, you know. And this way, we can say he expresses uh, his his uh, his freedom, you know.
0: When this happened uh, back in two thousand six, there was a lot of debate over whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. I, w- I wonder what the reaction has been there in Paris to your sculpture.
6: You know, I don't want to bore by people,
0: uh-huh. you know.
6: <laughs> And uh, I think uh, they are very happy. They are very excited, and uh, this is uh, what I I can't receive more than that. You know? do,
0: you, do you know if uh, Mr. Zidane has seen it?
6: I wish. I don't know, but I wish. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what was it? A big moment for you in 2006? Were you? Are you a fan of the professional game?
6: Not really. I am. Um, you can say, uh, I watch only uh, World Cup. Right. Talk about, that's it.
0: <laughs> Especially when France <laughs> is involved. Adel Abdesimid's exhibition opens next week at the Pompidou Center in Paris. It is much more than the sculpture of Zinedine Zidane that we're speaking about. And thank you, sir, for your time.
6: Thank you very much.
0: We have a photo of the Zidane headbutt sculpture. You can see it at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. A soldier's diary from the Vietnam War has finally returned to his family in Vietnam.
11: And at one point he talks about they're going to destroy so many American tanks and airplanes. It's a typical soldier's diary, but it's a diary of a voice that we don't normally hear from.
0: That story ahead on The World.
2: The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes. A diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, a two-night special starting Monday, October 1st at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Aaron
0: Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The three jailed members of the Russian feminist punk collective Pussy Riot are facing a big day in court on Monday. A judge in Moscow will be ruling on their appeal. The women were sentenced to two years in a penal colony for breaking into the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow and performing a protest song. Seven months after their stunt, Russian society remains divided about the case and about the Russian Orthodox Church's role in it. From Moscow, Matthew Brunwasser reports.
9: Despite 70 years of atheist communist rule, Russia remains a deeply conservative society with traditional Christian values. Pussy Riot's punk rock prayer was not received well by most Russians, but the way state and church officials handled the punishment did not go over well either. At a recent opposition rally in Moscow, Some of the banners and slogans normally directed at President Vladimir Putin also attacked the Russian Orthodox Church, seen as a key Kremlin ally. Gleb Pavlovsky was a Kremlin political advisor for 15 years until he was fired last year. He says Russia has been deeply affected by pussy
7: riot. There's a tremendous split. I know a lot of families in Russia where it's forbidden to talk about pussy riot at the dinner table.
9: Pavlovsky attributes the political muscle of the Orthodox Church to Russia's immature political culture. Simply put, politicians are losing credibility, and there's no other game in town. The pussy riot case brought this trend out into the open. It's
7: shown that in our culture, a secular alternative hasn't materialized. That's why so many people went from religious indifference in the Soviet years to fierce religious fervor. The
9: divisiveness of the Pussy Riot trial has fueled talk about two Russias. Pyotr Verzilov, husband of convicted Pussy Riot member Nadezhda Tolokonikova, says the government has used the case as a wedge between two Russias. One, urban, educated, and worldly, supports Pussy Riot. And the other Russia
6: lives in small cities or villages, uh, doesn't use the internet is very disconnected from uh, mainstream media and from mainstream Western culture. And to that portion of society, it was very easy to explain that what Pussy Riot did was some
9: horrible, blasphemous act they should be brutally punished for. Politically, some commentators see the Pussy Riot uproar as a victory for President Putin in the short term. Konstantin von Eggert from Kommersant FM in Moscow. He made the church fend for him, fend for the Kremlin, defending, pretending
7: rather, that it was solely an offense to religion rather than an offense to the Kremlin and Putin personally. And
1: it presented the opposition as a bunch of marginal idiots whose idea of being in opposition
9: is dancing in churches. This political maneuvering between the Kremlin and the church was the result of a few church officials, according to priest Georgi Mitrofanov. He says most church officials are indifferent to politics, Mitrofanov agrees that the Kremlin used the church for political cover. That's why I think the church should be kept at a maximum distance from the state, so that the state won't be able to use the church to protect its own actions. Among politicians who support close ties between the state and the church is Vitaly Milonov. He's a legislator in the regional parliament of St. Petersburg from the governing United Russia Party. Milonov makes no apologies for using the levers of the state to protect religious belief. This faith should be protected because faith is the most deep inside tender feeling. If we protect the health, we protect private property and so on, why should not we protect faith? At the end of the interview, legislator Milonov shared his frank opinion about living in a democratic society. Most of the people in Russia... They are absolutely agree that this action should be punished, without any doubt. Of course, there are some number of people whose reaction is different, but know it well, living in a democratic society, unfortunately. A good number of those who feel differently are young people. Religion analyst Geraldine Fagan says Russians over 30 grew up in the Soviet era, when the church was a symbol of resistance to state oppression so they are used to giving the church the benefit of the doubt.
5: The younger generation whose conscious experience is really only living under Putin, what they know is a privileged church, a church that's shown on television, a church that's allied with the regime, and they think negatively about the regime. For them, I think there isn't this automatic feeling of support for the church if something like this happens.
9: While the communist state tried to crush the church analysts note the government today is trying to co-opt it. The Russian parliament introduced a bill on Wednesday enacting criminal penalties for offending religious feelings. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Moscow.
0: Matthew also attended an art exhibit in Moscow in support of Pussy Riot. It drew protests from Orthodox believers. Matthew's audio slideshow is at theworld.org. We go next to Vietnam for our (laughs) geo-quiz. Your first clue is a Little Red Diary. It was kept by a North Vietnamese soldier who was killed in battle in 1966. A U.S. Marine picked it up and kept it for over four decades. But just last week, that diary was returned to the fallen soldier's family in a small village outside Vietnam's capital. We're going to hear from a history detective about how that reunion came to be. But first, you have just a few seconds to name the city that became Vietnam's capital in 1976. The History Detective we mentioned is Wes Cowan. He's lead investigator for the PBS show The History Detectives. Wes, the soldier's diary that's at the heart of next week's episode was a tiny red book, a personal battlefield diary of a fallen Vietnamese soldier. Um, Tell me, if you would, who this soldier was and uh, where he was
11: from. Well, he was a gentleman named Vu Dinh Duan, and he was from a small village outside of Hanoi, and he was a North Vietnamese member of the army. He was from the 21st Regiment of the People's Army of North Vietnam.
0: Okay, Hanoi is the answer to our geo-quiz.
11: What did he write about in this diary? Well, it's an amazing diary because he, he, he writes about leaving his village and Traveling south, Uh, he doesn't call it the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but it's very clear how that's how he and other members of the 21st uh, Regiment got to South Vietnam. They went down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and he talks about the the hardships that he and his fellow soldiers endured, climbing over mountains, eating nothing basically but rice for days on end. And at one point, he talks about taking eight hours to, to climb a steep mountain, and then when he got to the top of the mountain, he could see south vietnam and he thought about his home and it's it's a very very touching diary uh once he gets to the south he and his uh fellows are filled with patriotic fervor and at one point he talks about um having a big rally and uh saying that they're going to destroy so many american tanks and airplanes it's a typical soldier's diary but it's a diary of a voice that we don't normally hear from
0: now, how did this diary get from the pocket of the Vietnamese
11: soldier to you? Well, History Detectives was contacted by a woman named Marjorie Garner from Republic, Missouri, who had befriended a Marine named Ira Fraser, who was in Bravo Company, 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines, who had participated in an action in March 1966 in Quang Nai Province. And after the battle occurred, they were sent in to retrieve uh, dead Marines uh, and and to basically mop up the uh, battlefield. Frazier found a dead North Vietnamese soldier in a gun pit. And lying on the chest of the soldier was this little diary. He picked it up and, like soldiers have done since time immemorial, brought it back as a souvenir of his combat and his time in Vietnam.
0: What was the challenge for you, the history detective, tracing the owner of this diary? I I gather it did have an identification
11: card, some photos. Well, look, I mean, the diary had the soldier's name, had his village name. And and so we knew who the guy was. We knew what village he came from. But, uh, you know, from the United States to to Vietnam, that's a long way. You couldn't Google him? We, we couldn't Google him even. <laughs> but what we did have was a great contact in Vietnam. And in fact, he got on the telephone, called one of his uh, contacts in Hanoi, went out to the village and uh, asked about the uh, Vietnamese soldier, Vu Dinh Duan, And lo and behold, there were people there that knew exactly who he was.
0: You know, w- w- what does that feel like? I know you didn't go there, but um, what does that feel
11: like for you? You know, I'll tell you, um, I grew up in the in the Vietnam War era, and I remember where I was the day my lottery number was called out, and, I, you know, I could have gone to Vietnam. So it's a very personal story for me, but we're returning the diary of a former enemy of our country. As you read the diary, and then particularly as you come to understand who his family is, you, you realize that war touches combatants on both sides in the same way, and that Vu Ding Duan's family mourned his loss for years, and they still mourn his loss, but their feelings, their loss are no different than the families of the 53,000 Americans who were killed during the Vietnam War. I think that was the message that I got. Uh, it, was just, it was just, it's an amazing story. And I didn't really initially realize how much goodwill this generated when we returned the diary to Wu Ding children. There was an enormous crowd. there was a huge ceremony. Everybody was in tears it It just seems to me that this little act marks a real important diplomatic achievement.
0: Wes Cowan is host of the TV show The History Detectives. The Soldier's Diary episode airs on PBS next week. Wes, thank you.
11: My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on.
0: You can see what Vuuddin D'Indwan's diary looks like. You know where to go, theworld.org. Seems like a slow economy might lead people to drink. But in Ireland, the long recession has had the reverse effect. Since 2005, more than 1,000 pubs in the country have closed. And a survey suggests sales in pubs have dropped 30% over the past year. But there was a little bit of good news for Irish pub owners this week. It was the fourth anniversary of Arthur's Day. That's a day invented to boost sales of Guinness stout. John Sepulvedo has the story from Galway.
8: About 500 young pub goers came to the center of Galway last night to celebrate Arthur's Day. They danced in the rain, flung plastic cups of Guinness on each other, and climbed street signs you could call it. Drunk and disorderly. Um. 20-year-old Stephen Hines came with a group of friends to hear music and knock a few pints back. A lot of Guinness. A lot of other drinks too, but just the Irish being drunk. Guinness. Everything kind of goes together today. (laughs) Hines says that he started drinking Guinness regularly after last year's Arthur's Day celebration. And that's exactly why Guinness started this event. Just a few years ago, Guinness sales were falling. It's not clear just how badly. The company that owns Guinness doesn't make those figures public. But over the past seven years, about one in three Irish pub goers started staying home to drink, according to pub industry research. And Guinness took a sales hit because Guinness, perhaps more than any other beer, is associated with the pub. And bartenders say that those that did go to the pub started switching to heavily marketed trendier drinks, like flavored malts and ciders. Basically, the perception was that old men ordered Guinness.
7: Everyone drinks Guinness nowadays.
8: Craig Monaghan is a bartender in Galway. He says marketing is the reason people are drinking Guinness again. Back in the day, Monahan says Guinness was sold almost as a health tonic, with the old slogan, "Guinness is good for you."
7: Nowadays, it's more of a party drink. You know, it's it's connected with a lot of and events. You know, and uh, gigs like this, like Arthur's Day and music. You know, I suppose they're trying to make it a little bit more current, as they would say. You know, and I think it has worked.
8: Arthur's Day has been a big part of the rebranding effort. Arthur, by the way, is Arthur Guinness, the founder of the company, and by inventing the holiday. Guinness's parent company, Diageo, solved two problems. They got people back in the pubs while changing the perception that Guinness is for old people. Virgil Murray is the Guinness Global Brand Ambassador. He says the corporate-sponsored celebration has also been a boon for Irish pubs.
7: Pubs do, they love this opportunity. Music events brings people to their pubs. I mean, they have to think about it as an opportunity that they can grow their business, grow their reputation as well, and this is a platform where they can do that.
8: One taxi driver told me it's a busier night than St. Patrick's Day, and it comes during a traditionally slow period for pubs. Jerry Rafter is the head of the Vintners' Federation Ireland, the largest pub trade association in the country, and he has mixed feelings about Guinness's promotion of Arthur's Day.
11: Certainly, you know, I have to give them credit for for Arthur's Day, but one one swallow won't make a summer, if you, you understand the pun.
8: Rafter says that Arthur's Day is a symbol of what's happened to Irish pub culture, He says the Irish used to go to pubs to meet other people, but now pubs have to create events to lure customers. That might make for louder pubs, but Rafter says it's better that the pub culture change than die out. For The World, I'm John Sepulveda in Galway. The World,
2: it's good for you on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter. The United Nations recommends that pregnant women
0: visit a healthcare worker four times before giving birth. But in many parts of the world, that rarely happens. Resources and trained staff are scarce. And often the main tool for fetal diagnosis is something called a pinard horn, a device invented back in the 19th century. Now, some college kids in Uganda have created an updated version of the Pinard horn. The world's Clark Boyd writes about it in his latest column for the BBC's Future website. Clark, first off, what is a Pinard horn?
7: So, Aaron, I think the best thing to imagine is one of those old ear trumpets that you used to see people really? using. It's, it's not unlike that. It's a cylindrical horn. Uh, it's about usually about eight inches long, made from local wood or metal. And it's uh, wider at one end, and the wide end is placed against the woman's abdomen, and the healthcare worker puts the ear to the other end and listens. And, you know, this this is a tool that is still used widely in Europe and throughout the rest of the world. And it can tell the heart rate of the fetus. It can help determine the position of the fetus. People can get a lot of useful information from this tool. Now, how have these college students modified Cone. They were looking for a project to enter in what's called the Microsoft Imagine Cup, which is big ideas for solving the world's problems. And they visited a hospital in Kampala, Uganda, and uh, they saw people using this pinard horn. And they thought, you know, I think we can do a better version of that, maybe something that runs off a cell phone's software, a smartphone's software. And that's how they developed this device. They call it WinSenga. Win, it's based on the Windows mobile operating system. And Senga is the uh, local word for the auntie who used to act as the midwife. Um, So that's how they came up with the name.
0: Now, basically what this does
7: is takes the sound in from the pinard horn and explains to a midwife what they're hearing. It's their own custom-made kind of pinard horn. It's that same device, but they've put a microphone in it. So that can be held up to the woman's – that microphone can pick up the same sounds that a healthcare worker would be hearing, but then the, the the real meat of this is that they've developed this application for the smartphone that can do all sorts of diagnosis on this. So even people who aren't necessarily trained healthcare workers uh, can use this device, and you can get a baseline idea of of what's going on uh, with the unborn child, and if there are any problems, uh, what the next steps might be. You can read more about
0: WINSenga and see a video of the device in action at theworld.org. Clark Board. Thanks. You're welcome, Aaron. Finally today, we want you to meet Joe Wong. He left China some 18 years ago to study biochemistry at Rice University in Texas. Then he landed a gig at a pharmaceutical company. So far, so good. But now Joe Wong lives in Massachusetts, and he's in a very different line of work. He's a stand-up comedian. Here he is talking about immigration on The Late Show with David Letterman.
1: So uh, when I drive in certain states in this country, I have to have my papers ready, because I'm an immigrant. And then I learned that uh, the term immigrant has a negative connotation. I think that's probably why on those immigration papers, the United States government decided to call us aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so much nicer, you know? (laughs) Hey, we're not here to take your jobs. We're just here to uh, abduct you. (laughs)
0: But for all of Joe Wong's success as a comedian here in the US, he didn't exactly boast about his new career to his family back home in China. I didn't tell
1: them too much about it. Um, And then my dad heard it from the state radio one day after I made an appearance on The Letterman Show. And my dad was cooking lunch at the time, and he was like, oh, that sounds like my son, you know, (laughs) going to America in 94 and studying biochemistry. And then they reported my name, and that's when my dad really knew.
0: And and what did
1: he say? Well, he's always very supportive because ever since I turned 15, he basically just said to me, uh, your life is your own life, you know, I won't say anything anymore because he was so disappointed in me at the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anything you did would be better than what you were doing then? Oh, yeah. the <laughs> grades were really bad. You know, so. Now, uh, you, you've been in the States for about 18 years. You recently performed an entire stand-up routine in Mandarin Chinese, your native language. How did that go over here in Boston? It actually went over
1: really well. I've been doing stand-up comedy in English for 10 years, but I had no idea how my jokes would translate until probably last year. Uh, I published a biography in China. And uh, November last year, I went to China and did some uh, promotion. And as soon as I got there, they were like, okay, now you go on the TV show. And then immediately the host was like, okay, why don't you tell some jokes? And I have to translate some jokes from English to Chinese on spot. That was an (laughs) enormous amount of pressure. Uh, After that, I found out that uh, uh, some of the
0: jokes actually could translate. Can you tell us a joke in Chinese? Oh, yes, of course. Then (laughs) then you have to translate it. Okay,
1: Okay, so uh, this is the joke kind of works in uh, both China and America. Okay. uh Silence. <laughs> in English, this means uh, if we're, if I were to die in a car accident, I wanted to be a collision with a cement truck. That way, immediately after I die, there's a statue of me. <laughs> well, that's good. And, and is that what most of uh, your routine is like? Uh, yeah, some some of it. Um, it some jokes are, that are hard to translate are um, related to the American culture stuff. Like, America is more of a uh, multi-ethnic country, you know. So people are more aware of uh, this this race thing. But uh, in China, people are slightly less aware of that. So some of the jokes about you know race relations is a little bit harder, you know. Like recently, my son came home and just said to me, "Hey, Dad, am I white?" And I was like, oh, no, you're not white. You're yellow. And he looked at his arm and he was like, hey, dad, this doesn't look yellow to me. <laughs> I said, well, it's not exactly yellow, but in this country, everybody has to have a color. Right. And that's the color they give us. <laughs> you just have to deal with it. you know. But stuff like this, you know, for the Chinese audience is slightly harder because uh, it's so hard for them to grasp the idea. You know, everybody has to have a color, you know, like. When I first came to the United States, I don't even notice people's hair color, you know, because in China everybody has the same hair color. And <laughs> after coming here, people say, "Oh, uh, she's a redhead." I was like, "Oh, that's not even red," and it's like has a red tinge on her right. hair,
0: you know. So, and that must come up in the comedy. Uh, it's really interesting. Yes,
1: yeah, it is interesting, probably for the Chinese audience, but not for Americans. So America probably just don't even think it's real, because how can we be? Looking the same, you know. They, they well, our so.
0: joke about Asians—they all look alike. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. But if I joke about Asians being look alike, they then people can kind of relate because that's how they feel. Right. But if I say you know Caucasian look alike, they don't feel that way. You know? <laughs> it's
0: like, we don't look alike. You know? It is a pretty funny reversal, though. To think oh, about. Exactly. <laughs> that is stand-up comedian Joe Wong. Congratulations on your success, and and thank you for coming in. Oh, thanks so much. You can laugh along with Joe Wong, or at him, I guess. Check out a video montage of his comedy at theworld.org. We'll close the program with a snippet of it. I grew
1: up in China. did not
0: The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend.
1: I'm not a very religious person, but I think I'm going to go to heaven anyway. Maybe illegally.
2: The World is a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International